right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. U.S. Navy leaders constantly talk about the need for fast-paced innovation, but what's the real story? Is new technology being integrated into the fleet as fast as it can? We'll hear from a former admiral deeply familiar with getting that technology into the hands of warfighters. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The U.S. destroyer Milius carried out a freedom of navigation operation March 24th near the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea. It was the first such FONOPS by a U.S. Navy warship since November. The U.S. Navy statement on the movement was unusually lengthy and repeated many of the concerns by the United States about China's, quote, unlawful and sweeping maritime claims in the South China Sea. The statement also pointed to the other nations, including Taiwan and Vietnam, who make what the U.S. consider to be excessive maritime claims. Chinese reaction was swift, with the defense ministry spokesman issuing a statement condemning the U.S. for illegally entering what it claims are Chinese territorial waters. The aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt left Puget Sound Naval Shipyard March 17th after a 20-month dry docking overhaul. The Big Stick returned to her home port in North Island, San Diego on March 24th. Meanwhile, in Japan, the amphibious dock landing ship USS Ashland left Sasebo March 22nd to return to the U.S. after nearly a decade operating with the U.S. Navy's forward-deployed Naval Forces Japan. Ashland is scheduled to be decommissioned sometime after returning to San Diego. Three patrol coastal vessels, USS Hurricane PC-3, USS Scirocco PC-6, and USS Thunderbolt PC-12 were decommissioned March 20th in a ceremony at Alexandria, Egypt, where on the following day, all three were transferred to the Egyptian Navy. The PCs had been based with the U.S. Fifth Fleet at Manama, Bahrain, and sailed to Egypt with combined Egyptian-U.S. Navy crews. A total of 10 U.S. Navy PCs at one time were based at Bahrain, and the last two, USS Monsoon PC-4 and USS Chinook PC-9, will be decommissioned March 24th and soon be transferred to the Philippines. The PCs have not been replaced in service with Fifth Fleet. And the research vessel Petrol suffered a calamity March 22nd when high winds dislodged the ship while in a dry dock at Leith, Scotland sending it off its blocks to lie to one side at about a 45-degree angle. The ship was purchased by the U.S. Navy in September and is well known as the floating base of the shipwreck-finding expeditions funded by the late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. The team aboard Petrol established a reputation as the world's greatest shipwreck finders. Among their finds were the sunken U.S. aircraft carriers Lexington, Wasp, and Hornet, the cruiser in Indianapolis, the Japanese battleship Musashi, and many, many others. The team was disbanded, however, after Allen's death and the subsequent worldwide pandemic, and the Navy bought the ship and all its gear for an undisclosed mission. It is not yet clear if the petrol will be repaired or not. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right, well, today we're going to talk about Navy innovation. We're also going to, going to talk about um, a company that we don't hear an awful lot about, Lidos. With us today is Vice Admiral Retired. 
Dave Lewis, that he is now the senior vice president, operations manager for maritime business at Lidos, a top 20 defense contractor. Welcome to the podcast, Admiral. Thank you very much. Appreciate the invitation. All right. So just by, by way of introduction for the audience, um, Vice Admiral Lewis was the he was the program executive officer for ships at Naval Sea Systems Command in 2010-2014. Uh, uh, that's a that is a big job. That, he oversees the construction of 32 surface ships during the during his time there, um, and then he, um, he he was the commander at Spay War. That 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 is the Space and Naval Warfare Systems Command out in uh, San Diego. Um, that is also a big deal. And he finished his Navy career as director of Defense Contract Management Management Agency, DCMA. He knows an awful lot about building ships and buying ships and managing innovation and technology. Um, since leaving his active duty career, he held the acquisition chair at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and he entered the commercial world with Lidos uh, just last September. So, Dave, I mean, you know, Lidos is one of those com- it's one of those names you you know you see at defense shows all the time. You hear about it. Um, it is a it's a it's a, it's a big company. It's a top twenty worldwide defense contractor. But what is Lidos? What do you tell people? Uh, Lidos is an innovator and a disruptor. Uh, we we operate in uh, in uh, the cloud and edge processing uh, in the maritime domain uh, where I was hired. Uh, we're very strong in the acoustics market and autonomy for uh, surface and undersea vessels. Uh, the, the company as a whole has an aviation segment. We have uh, uh, foreign presence in Australia and the UK. Uh, very broad based. Uh, uh, very innovative. That's principal reason I came to the company. Yeah. Uh, very, uh, very willing and able to uh, to enter into to new areas of business and in uh, unexplored areas of innovation. So uh, I, I really enjoy being with the company. I've been here obviously about six months now. What are some of the the uh, top key projects you're working on in the maritime world? Uh, we have. Uh, Sea uh, uh, Hawk and Sea Hunter. So, of the six uh, uncrewed un- surface vessels the Navy has, Lidos uh, built uh, five of them, or ha- is building five of them, and uh, and we we make the ones that actually work. Uh, so Ooh, that's, a that's dig! Good. <laughs> and Sea uh, Hawk and Sea Hunter have over eighty thousand miles of operations over the last uh, almost a decade now. And, uh, and are quite active in, uh, in fleet exercises and, uh, and have proven their autonomy uh, at sea multiple times right. For, right. for several weeks in a shot. And, why, uh, why do you think now I was just a few weeks ago, I was out in San Diego and I, I had the chance to go over and, and um, stand on the Sea Hunter. Excellent. Um, now, now, folks, this is this is these, these, these unmanned surface vessels. Yep. Um, the Seahawk and Sea Hunter that he's talking about were the First two, they're sort of uh, very thin uh, hulls without riggers. Uh, they're they're unique looking. The other other vessels are more or less modifications of sort of standard crew boats that you yes. see in the Gulf of Mexico. That's true. That's true. Um, just you know, big, very handy platforms to modify for that. Um, but you know, Sea Hunter's been around for almost, really a decade now. Almost. And, yes. and yet, and it's done some really amazing things. I mean, I mean, they've that and and other unmanned vessels have done amazing things in the sense of they've gone uh, from the Panama Canal up to the, you know, to the East yes. coast uh, from the Panama Canal to the West coast, from the West coast out to San Diego, uh, sorry, Honolulu, I'm sorry, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii Pearl Harbor, and back. Yeah. 
um, multiple, I mean, thousands of hours of operating autonomously on the high seas and in high traffic areas. And a lot of those exercises have been deliberately to put the ship in, in areas where, you know, it's, it's going to have to think a lot. It's going to have to act. And other things are going to have to act, react to it as well. Um, and yet there's this huge lack of confidence in, in Congress that, that now sort of um, drives a lot of the public discussion the Navy does. They don't want to come out too strong for some of this stuff, even though they're forecasting that, you know, in 10 to 15 years, they want to have 150 of these ships out operating as fleet units. Yes. Part of a proposed 500 ship Navy. Um, and yet there's this sort of hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, but no, 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 not so fast. And you sort of have to keep repeating the same demonstrations over and over. How do you, how do you, view, how do you view this situation? I mean, I mean it, it's got to be really frustrating. For well, those that's, uh, to go. Yeah, that's something I'd like to chat with you about is uh, uh, there's a quote from uh, Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Alphabet and Google, is testifying before Congress in 2018. And uh, he said the Defense Department does not have uh, technology invention problem, we have a technology adoption problem. We're quite able to invent things and we're struggling with exactly what you described, which is how to bring that to the fleet. And uh, the Navy has, uh, I, I like military history, I like technology history, so I, I pay a lot of attention to that. The Navy has a very good and very strong history of technology adoption. And we have had a particular way of doing it over the last 250 years. And uh, uh, the last most recent example I'll give is nuclear power. 1954, Nautilus, first nuclear powered submarine, uh, is commissioned. Uh, nuclear power at the time was much like autonomous vehicles today. Nobody really knew what it was, didn't exactly understand how it played in the maritime arena. The Navy's solution to that was to build 11 classes of submarines in the next seven years and a nuclear powered aircraft carrier and a nuclear powered cruiser. Uh, so 35 ships in seven years, all nuclear powered, all operational. And those ships deployed with Navy crews as fleet assets. And what happened was the Navy learned what nuclear power was and how it could be used. Uh, the uh, submarine community explored the design space for nuclear powered submarines. So you had conventional hulls, which was uh, Nautilus. You had albacore hulls, which are streamlined hulls. You had two reactors in submarines. You had one reactor in submarines. You had two screws on submarines. You had one screw on submarines. You had sodium reactors and water-cooled reactors. And uh, at the end of, and as those operated, the Navy gained opinions about those things. And at the end of that seven years, the Navy decided albacore hull, one reactor, one screw, fast as hell. And that's the Los Angeles class submarines. And we built 62 of them. So, so the Navy's approach to technology adoption then was to build out the design space, explore the problem, learn. Uh, nuclear power was a mystery. And so we applied mystery solving techniques and put them in the fleet and let the fleet tell us what they liked and what they didn't like. 
And that produced a very successful line of submarines. Then conceptually, it's still in place today with the, with the Albacore Hall single reactor and so on. So, uh, so we have that in, and I can give you other examples going back in time, but, but that's been our history is to be very aggressive about adopting technology and very aggressive about putting in the fleet and in the fleet as fast as possible and letting the fleet commanders and the commanding officers and the petty officers and the two petty officers operate those platforms or or those technologies and then tell us what they think about them. so uh, what's wrong today but but i mean yeah. what you know what what is stalling everything now uh we don't do that very much we we have uh technical reviews blue ribbon panels we do studies uh, there's lots of studies about uh about uncrewed vehicles and i have they could fill a room with all the studies uh but those are not informed by new knowledge. New knowledge is only generated by putting stuff out in the fleet and using it. And, and we've done a lot of that with Seahawk and Sea Hunter and Ranger and Mariner, the new uh, OUSVs, uh, Overlord USVs that are coming into service now. Uh, but we need to, I think we need to do more of that and, and get those things, get those platforms out. Uh, Frankly, take them out of the hands of the engineers and put them in the hands of petty officers and lieutenants and uh, and see what they think. And they will tell us pretty quickly what they think. A good current example is Task Force 59 out in uh, the Persian Gulf. Uh, 18 months ago or so, they uh, told industry, bring your toys. 50, 60 industries showed up uh, and I think now they're down to 14 uh, companies. So there was a lot of failure. There was a lot of lessons learned, a lot of new knowledge generated. And now you see those UAVs and USVs and networks and uh, so on deployed across the entire fifth fleet area of responsibility and uh, very successful. Uh, and it was all driven by the fleet. And I believe we know in 18 months, we've learned more about that uh, that operation than we've learned in the last 10 decades of studies. Admiral, you, you mentioned uh, nu nuclear power. Um, I mean, a, a huge uh, force behind that was Admiral Rickover. Um, do we need a Rickover-like figure in the unmanned world or um, can that be done kind of collectively through Spay War, folks out of Fifth Fleet? I mean, can it be kind of a coalition of the willing? Because, I mean, you know, you're a student of history, you know, the goods and bads of, of someone of a figure like Rickover. Um, I just want to get your thoughts. I mean, is that does that help bring us to where we need to go or do we have the forces moving in the right direction now? It certainly helps. I mean, Adam uh, Workover, Wade Meyer, uh, Rayburn for Polaris program, uh, Reeves and Moffat for naval aviation, uh, Humphreys for uh, the six frigates. Uh, yes, th that helps galvanize it, personalizes it in a, in a human being, an officer with stature. Uh, Dewey uh, is the one I'm just reading about now uh, with the, uh, uh, the birth of the battleship and the, and the Navy second to none in the, in just before World War I. So that's helpful. I don't know that it's a requirement, uh, but, uh, but yes, that would be helpful. But I think we have the tools to do it. We have the organization to do it. Uh, it's just a matter of, uh, of doing it. As you um, get around, whether it's with industry or talk to you know former shipmates or mentees, um, do you see the progress being made on the cultural side 
um, you know, this idea of man versus unmanned. Um, my sense is that's getting a lot better um, and that will help in that adoption. But I mean, you're, you're out there um, much more frequently. Um, is that in uh, a driver or a detractor at this point, sort of the, the cultural, uh, you, you know, stigma that once was? I think uh, the, the technology is largely coming from OSD and uh, Off-Secretary Defense and, and those, those, those six ships I talked about were all procured through DARPA or, or SCO, Special Capabilities Office, and, and, and those places. So, uh, and, and those are coming to the Navy uh, for the Navy to use. I, I think there are uh, defined organizations uh, that whose job is to innovate, uh, bringing that together is is proving to be a challenge. And and and, I, and again, I think the thing that's missing is the voice of the fleet. Uh, we're trying to do it inside the Beltway. The Navy's trying to do it inside the Beltway. I can't say we anymore. Uh, the Navy's trying to do it inside the Beltway. And uh, and the reality is there are hundreds of thousands, literally, of sailors out there operational, uh, Task Force 59 being a, a, a subset of that, uh, that, that are in a fight tonight mode. They're, they they are operational, and they know what they want, they know what they need, and, uh, and they want the new technology. And I, and I think a key is to put that technology in the hands of our sailors uh, in the fleet, four-star admirals and captains, and like I said, petty officers and chief petty officers. And, uh, and they are uh, unsparing in their opinions about their technology. And if they like it, they'll tell you. And if they don't like it, they'll tell you. And, uh, and that's uh, critical. And again, back to the Task Force 59, there was a lot of those systems they didn't like, looked good in a brochure, you know, uh, worked well in a demo at a, in a harbor somewhere, uh, but uh, didn't, didn't perform, didn't meet the mark uh, in, the, in the real world. And so they, uh, they left. And, uh, and that's, that's what we did with nuclear power. That's what we did with naval aviation. And that's what we have done consistently through our history. It doesn't always work well. I mean, I'm thinking P fired boilers for uh, the old folks in the crowd. That was a really good idea that didn't pan out. Uh, there are things like that, but but being aggressive about technology, being the leader within technology, uh, running down those uh, trap lines to see if it works or not, putting it in the hands of sailors, that, uh, that very quickly generates uh, opinions and new knowledge about that capability and allows uh, the engineers and decision makers to, to uh, tailor their actions to, uh, to the best product. I, I want to glance off of that just for a second. Um, as Chris mentioned, um, you know, post Navy, you were acquisition, you were the acquisition chair um, and professor of practice at Naval Postgraduate School. That experience, coupled with really an entire career of acquisition experience, um, as you're now in industry. What's missing to bring, whether it's unmanned, whether it's, um, you know, things that we see grow out of uh, DIU or Naval X or what, what's missing to help these things become more mainstream? Um, I mean, you, you know, everybody sort of talks about the one-offs, but you, you've kind of had a, a foot in each of these camps. I mean, what, what would you say is missing or, you know, if you're king for a day, what would you change? If I go back to the birth of Naval Aviation. In, in the 20 years before Pearl Harbor, Buair, what's now NAVAIR, 
fielded 62 different type model series of airplanes. Uh, in the early days, in the 20s, the Navy, you know, the carrier aviation, like nuclear power, we didn't know, we didn't know what that was. It was a mystery. And so the Navy went to industry and the Navy didn't tell industry what to build. The Navy said, we'll buy your airplanes, you develop them at your cost, and, and you can earn your money back through production contracts. So many of the planes built in the early 1920s were spec builds, if you will, speculative builds by Boeing and Curtis and lots of companies that don't exist anymore. And, uh, and then as those airplanes flew in their tens and twenties, uh, I mean, production quantity, uh, the Navy started to learn what it liked about airplanes flying off of aircraft carriers. Uh, they were also building aircraft carriers for in that time before the New Yorktown the Hornet class. Uh, and so the Navy was starting to have an opinion about airplanes and ships. And then the Navy started specifying what it wanted. Uh, Task Force 59 didn't have any requirements. Bring your toys. Uh, I would say uh, now the defense industry that does studies is, is, is well-funded. We're doing lots of uh, really interesting studies. Uh, I live in a world of RFPs, uh, and I'm not getting, I'm not seeing a lot of RFPs, uh, requests for proposals for it to build things. Uh, I would say that's the next thing, is you have a lot of industry is building big ships, uh, aircraft carriers, destroyers, FIBs. They're busy. They are very busy. They don't have room for According to the Navy, they don't have room to build what they got, so they're not going to try anything new. Uh, the studies industry is fully employed. Companies like Lidos, other uh, second tier second tier shipyards, have capacity. Uh, we have designs. We we have abilities. Uh, in response to RFPs, we will build ships, uh, UAVs, uh, excuse me, USVs and UUVs, and uh, and if we're happy to do the designs. We've got several designs. We could do others, as are other companies in that same place, and that's a new source of product, and I think it's a, a source of new knowledge to the fleet, and those uh, those new products can be operated, and the Navy will very quickly be able to differentiate between the good ones and the bad ones. So and, folks, uh, folks, you hear that out there, we have capacity, we have the technology. Is anybody listening? Um, a, a, a little different take on this yeah. is that when you come up with these unmanned platforms, and it's certainly when the Sea Hunter came out, yeah. Uh, what, what struck a lot of people as, okay, well, this, and the Navy was kind of, I mean, they were, they were overplaying it. It's, it's DARPA. It's, I mean, everybody sort of oversells these things. And um, it looks like it's full of exploitable technology. And everybody, right away, you think, well, that's great. The Chinese are just going to capture one of these or all of them and just use it for whatever they want. Um, there's, there is this issue of confidence in unmanned systems. Uh, when they're when when they're when they fall in unfriendly territory, they're out there to be exploitable. Obviously, the the Iranians grabbed two sail drones, um, so actually, actually took them on board some of their ship, one of their ships, and then threw them back in the water. Um, a number, several MQ nines uh, Reapers have been brought down. They're not not all Reapers, but MQ nines, um, unmanned aircraft, large unmanned surveillance aircraft have come down, have come down over unfriendly territory. And of course, just recently in the Black Sea and the Russians are going, oh, we're going to go out there and get it. Um, and we have all these assurances from on high that there's nothing really out there to get. Um, folks seem to think 
these platforms are full of exploitable technology. And when, when you talk to people who design them about it, those situations seem to be factored into the development of those systems. Are they really? I mean, is, is there something to worry about here? Or is that something that, you know, you're, you're now involved in, in, in producing these things that are supposed to, you know, sail in unfriendly areas? Um, that's, isn't that a factor in, in, in your design of these? Uh, most of the, of the secret sauce, if you will, in autonomy is in the computer programs and in the algorithms. Uh, uh, some have started to introduce uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning routines, and, and that uh, can be zeroed out. Uh, that technology is pretty mature. Um, I would say the rest of it, as I've learned about autonomy in this job, uh, most people think of autonomy as not running into other ships or islands or stuff like that. And the reality is it's much, much deeper than that. Uh, ships have been designed with human beings on board literally for thousands of years. So the presence of people in a ship is embedded in the design of the ship. And to, to build a truly autonomous vehicle like Seahawk and Sea Hunter, uh, Lido's found that uh, we were released from some constraints, but we also had new constraints. Uh, if a circuit breaker flips, there's no human being there to flip it back. The circuit breaker has to be self-actuating and then self-restoring. Uh, if a uh, engine runs out of lube oil, on a ship, a person is there to put more lube oil in it. Well, there's nobody there on Seahawk and Seahawk. So the design of the ship has to account for well, how long do you want it to be on crew? A week, two weeks, eight hours, uh, a month, a year. Uh, and then the engineering that goes into that design then determines uh, the uh, operation of the ship. So, so just gluing a, uh, something that doesn't run into other ships is a level of autonomy, but it's probably not the autonomy that the fleet wants. Uh, the, the fleet wants to send it over the horizon have it do its job and, and come back. As far as the, the law of the sea and uncrewed ships, that's not my area of expertise. I defer to the lawyers and, uh, and other folks on that one. Uh, if there are things we have to do for an uncrewed ship to comply with that, then obviously we'll do that. Uh, my interest in the, the un, uncrewed ships and the, is, is how to make them truly uncrewed, uh, reliable, uh, effective for the fleet operation and, uh, and connected into the, the fleet infrastructure, distributed maritime operations uh, architecture, if you will. And, and that turns out to be a lot more than just not running into ships and complying with coal regs, the, the law of the sea navigation requirements. And, the, and that's where the engineering challenge is. And frankly, that's a strength uh, Lighthouse has through Gibbs and Cox and our, and our, uh, our uh, Seahawk Sea Hunter experience with, with uh, engineers that put those ships together. Well, sir, we're going to have to leave it there. We're, uh, we're out of time. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we've been talking to retired Admiral Dave Lewis, uh, currently the Senior Vice President of Maritime Business at Lidos. Um, a wealth of knowledge on, on lots of subjects. I'd love to have you come back so we could talk more about maintenance and shipbuilding. Uh, so may, maybe we could get you on uh, uh, again sometime soon. But thank you very much for joining us, sir. Thank you for your time and excellent questions. Now hear this. Now hear this.
All right, you know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And speaking of PCs, this week, Mr. Cavus talks about the importance of making things work. Thanks, Chris. Well, as noted, noted earlier, the U.S. Navy just decommissioned three more patrol coastal vessels, commonly referred to as PCs, and transferred them to a friendly nation. Within days, the last two will also leave service, and like most of their sister ships, will soon be in service under the flag of a partner nation. And thus will come to a close the unlikely history of the patrol coastals in U.S. Navy service. It was one heck of a convoluted story. Briefly, during the late 1980s, the U.S. Navy's Special Warfare Community wanted a larger vessel for covert insertion and extraction operations. And the Navy adapted a British patrol boat design to the mission. But when the first ship, Cyclone, PC-1, entered service in 1993, the Special War operators complained it was too large and the community quickly disavowed them. Too late to stop the procurement of 12 more sister ships, all of which were delivered by 1995 to a Navy that really did not want them. After all, these were small brown water ships not designed for the open ocean blue water fight the U.S. Navy's culture loved so well. Various ideas were floated for what to do with them. Some commanders thought they'd be quite useful to interact with smaller navies whose entire fleets were smaller than one single U.S. destroyer. Other folks thought they should go to the Coast Guard, and the Cyclone herself was decommissioned and placed in coasty service in 2000. But it was quickly apparent the ships were unsuitable for Coast Guard missions. Efforts were then in hand to decommission the entire class. And then along came 9-11. And all of a sudden, there was an urgent requirement for ships to patrol the harbors of the United States. Voila, a mission the PCs could perform and free up larger and more valuable warships for fleet missions. Some were even placed under Coast Guard command. But it was a relatively short-lived role, and some of the ships were effectively taken out of service. Maintenance funding was cut. Some of the PCs became spare parts assets for others. And then came Operation Iraqi Freedom, and a greatly enlarged U.S. presence in the Mideast and the Persian Gulf in particular. Beginning in 2004, PCs were sent to operate with U.S. Central Command's 5th Fleet based in Manama, Bahrain. Eventually, 10 of the PCs were based there, all were modernized, refurbished, and upgunned for the new mission. And here they finally found a home. The PCs were famously busy, ranging throughout the Gulf and out into the Gulf of Oman and the Arabian Sea, frequently used as escorts for larger warships up to aircraft carriers, moving in and out of the Strait of Hormuz. So now, after more than a quarter century of the U.S. Navy trying to get rid of them, the PCs are ending their American service lives. The lesson here is one of adaptability. The ships never performed their intended mission, but rather were adapted into roles unforeseen when they were built. They may not have been the absolute best asset for these new missions, but they were good enough, and in the end gave a great return to the taxpayer for a relatively minimal investment. This is not the only time a ship or aircraft or weapon turned out to be quite effective in something other than what it was designed for. Actually, history is replete with such examples. I think of this often, when I hear senior military officials complain that some relatively new asset isn't exactly what they want, that now they want to get rid of it and instead plow more resources into buying another shiny brand new object that won't be here for years to come. Rather than throwing away things early that have much life in them, left in them, I'd rather be hearing about how assets that exist right now can be adapted to effectively carry out new missions. Oh, but I know. That's not nearly as much fun as getting that shiny new thing. LCS.
Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishers Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles in every class, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>